Welcome to Out of Focus, a new 74 podcast series hosted by Marva Chawlar on imagining and creating in a world that has become increasingly obscure. How do you imagine, create, produce, or even function when the future is out of focus? Tune in to Marva Chawlar in conversation with leading artists, designers, architects, and professionals from the creative industry. Welcome to Out of Focus. Today I am joined by Jessica Morgan. Jessica Morgan has been the director of the Art Foundation since 2015, which is an exceptional arts institution that has a unique mission with locations in Beacon, Manhattan, and various site-specific locations across the US. Dia comes from the Greek word meaning through, seeks to help artists achieve visionary projects that might not otherwise be realized because of scale or scope. Or as Jessica defines it in her own words, our job is to work with artists, we're a conduit for artists. Among the site-specific works that Dia runs and maintains are the Lightning Field in New Mexico and the New York Earth Room by Walter de Maria, as well as Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty in Utah, amongst many others. Since Morgan's arrival at Dia, the foundation has diversified its collection to include significant works by Mary Kors, Nancy Holt, and Lee Ufan, among many others. Prior to her role at Dia, Jessica was the Daskalopoulos Curator of International Arts at Tate Modern in London for 12 years. She was also the artistic director of the 10th Guangzhou Biennale in 2014, chief curator at the ICA in Boston, and curator at the Museum of Contemporary Arts in Chicago. I have known Jessica through her work in Turkey and working with Turkish artists. She has been an advocate of working with artists outside of the Western white male canon throughout her career, which I have been following with great admiration. I am excited to be speaking with Jessica today. Hello, Jessica, and welcome to Out of Focus. Hi, Mav. Um... I'm I'm okay. Uh, I'm here in New York City, and um, you know, like everybody, I think taking one day at a time, one week at a time. Exactly, and and I mean, as the podcast's name suggests, I mean, have you been out of focus? Um, actually, no. I would say I think I've been intensely in focus um, since whatever it was, March 14th, or whenever we shut down, and then had to kind of pivot our lives in a very dramatic way. And of course, here in the US, um, it's been a time of extraordinary upheaval and violence and uh, a great deal to address in our society here. So I think um, it's called for incredible focus. I can imagine. I mean, it's across the world, it has been a difficult time, but I guess New York is on top of the list of one of the toughest places to be. I, you know, I don't know. I always try and put it in the context of, of the world. And um, I think, you know, this has been a long time coming. I hope that we'll see some really positive change as a result of what's been happening over the last, you know, few weeks and months here. Um, you know, I think there's a tendency to kind of ignore the fact that we've had centuries of violence in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, uh, you know, the moment of, of reckoning, I hope, you know, we're, we're at a different point right now, but, but we shall see. You know, that said, let's face it, you know, things are, are pretty complicated where I'm from in the UK right now. Um, and uh, yeah. obviously you're, you're in Turkey and, um, you know, we, we can all point to our, our internal <laughs> dramas, right? For sure. Um, a lot of art professionals have been saying that there will be a before and after COVID in terms of art. I mean, what do you, I was, what do you think about this? Um, I mean, I suppose there are different ways to look at that. Um, I run an institution, you know, I've, I've always been a very kind of institution-based curator and now director. 
So I tend to think of it through through that lens, I suppose. I'm, I'm not a, an artist. Um, and I think, I would hope anyway, that certainly there will be changes. I think necessarily there'll be changes. Um, you know, some of the most obvious, of course, relate to the sort of speed and quantity, I think, of, of mm -hmm. program and activity and scale um, that has just been on a kind of constant acceleration now for, for decades, really. And I think everybody was perhaps exhausted by that. I, I think it had become it become a kind of tautology. It was just sort of more for more sake. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think there's a great hope amongst many people to see a shift in that dynamic. Um, but there are, you know, there are so many ways to, to think about this. I think, you know, certainly thinking about the equity that our institutions um, often, you know, um, state to, to claim through programs and through exhibitions, but internally are very poor at affecting. I think we're all in a profoundly um, reflective moment right now in trying to address our, our behavior internal behavior, the, the culture of our institution and the way in which we address our communities. So that I think is also, you know, reason for great hope um, and, and change within um, within the, the sort of cultural uh, institutional world. But there, you know, there are so many ways in which I think, um, you know, one can one can be hopeful, but also extremely concerned about what will happen to the, the kind of diversity of the arts the smaller scale spaces that are struggling so profoundly now, um, as well as, of course, individual artists who are, who are experiencing a complete um, loss of livelihood, whether it was through teaching positions or um, mm -hmm. all kinds of uh, sort of activities and, and jobs that, that, that were precarious to begin with and are now almost non-existent. Um, so it's, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a very hard situation to predict in, in so many ways, but of course, we try and look for what the positives could be coming out of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, for me, you've been an incredibly inspirational figure in terms of being an art professional. Um, and you've delved upon um, some of the things that I thought were visionary um, as, as, an, as a fellow art professional. And um, one of the things that I was thinking about was it was your first announcement that you wouldn't go ahead with the plans of building. And now it even makes more sense. Um, and you have genuinely listened to artists who said, don't build up, you'll lose the natural light, or it was not about the specificity of the, of the space. It's, I mean, it, it, it is about the specificity of the space and not about space per se, um, and having a DIA space. And I mean, what is it about larger spaces and star architect buildings that have been that have become even more pro problematic now with the funding difficulties. And um, how does DIA stay put? Yes, I mean these are these are really key questions, I think. Um, and and thank you, Mo, for yeah citing the artists because th that really was so important to me was to spend time with artists who were close to us, who'd, who'd worked in our spaces previously, who'd kind of thought deeply about what DIA meant to them um, when they were you know working on specific projects or, or exhibitions or attending programs. And um, although it was my gut instinct um, that this was the right thing to do, to hear it so profoundly expressed by them that, um, you know, their their sort of connection with DIA was very much through this humility of the architecture, I would say, you know, that these were found spaces. They're not spaces that were built with any kind of intentionality in terms of showing mm -hmm. artwork in them, but that they, you know, existed, that they were 
for all kinds of reasons, um, you know, ideal for showing art, usually, you know, factory spaces, natural light was an important component in order to simply save on electricity. Mm -hmm. um, so lots of those buildings have, have natural light as a sort of function of their previous existence. They're often, you know, sturdy buildings. They were supporting industrial um, machinery. So, so the weight that they carry is often um, exceptionally higher than, than most buildings. But I think more, the most important thing is that when you enter them, they do not call for your attention as a competing factor in your visual um, experience within the space. You know, they're, they're not shouting mm -hmm. out for um, as as a kind of um, parallel uh, aesthetic. You know, and mm -hmm. that's always it's always been. You know, I think again, as somebody who's worked in all these different buildings um, in the different institutions I've worked in there's always been this struggle, you know, you're kind of fighting the architecture with every artist you work with. Um, and it, it becomes tiresome as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's uh, it's sort of not what you want to do. I mean, of course, you know, we can go back to moments in time where artists have, have moved outside of the institution. I think for so many reasons, you know, that was not just to do with the architecture, of course, it's to do with the institution itself and everything that it represents or may have represented mm -hmm. or currently represents. But but there is also that, that simple fact of what it is to be contained um, and what that containment um, says, you know. And it's a, you know, it's an ongoing struggle that I, I have certainly um, witnessed in the different places that I've worked that have all gone through various um, expansions and, you know, new building openings, et cetera. So it, it, was, a, it was a relief in some ways. Um, and I've never wanted to be in that position. It's a horrendous amount of money that is expended on a lot of these projects and makes me feel deeply uncomfortable, the idea of, of sort of putting that into bricks and mortar rather than into art and artists. Um, and it just didn't seem like something I wanted to replicate. Now, in, I mean, after five years, I think it can be understood in a different level. And another thing that I thought, the footfall as a driving force for blockbuster exhibitions is, I mean, certainly over, at least for a while. And I I recently read in an article where um, Francis Morris, who is the chief curator of Tate, of course, expressed that after COVID, it was a great, you know, it's great for um, museums to focus on their permanent collections now and the, you know, and the amazing things that they possess and, and that they've taken their eyes off their core mission. And um, she said, I'd love a return to slower looking, which is what you have been talking about since you arrived at DIA and your choice to, um, to arrive at DIA, I guess. And do you think there will be a shift in many other institutions like this? And what are the ways in which you can stay relevant for a younger audience? I mean, um, I think it's you're a visionary in that respect also. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Merv. I, I give huge credit to Frances. She was an incredible mentor to me when I was at Tate and I have immense respect for her. Um, I think, you know, I think we're, we're seeing a shift. I mean, just when, as you see these um, institutions reopen, it's wonderful to see that a show that was supposed to close perhaps in the midst of the shutdown is now extended until well into 2021. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I, I, I'm thrilled that, you know, say at the Whitney, there's this wonderful um, Vida Americana exhibition. I think it's on until January now. now Mm -hmm. I, I've got the chance now to see it not once, but perhaps three times between now and then. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's great. I mean, I can't take any credit for this at DIA. The core mission has always been um, about the notion of, of 
temporality is as central to the institution and, and that incorporates of course the idea of permanence i mean we have multiple works that are permanently on view um with the idea that of course you can revisit them not just you know within one calendar year but within your life it's you know it's a very different i, I can speak now personally to this i mean it's, it's very different to visit the lightning field for the very first time and then to visit it for the fourth time um, you're different, the, the climate is different, the ecology is different, your understanding of the work is different, your life is different. And um, that is a very profound um, aspect that, as I say, it was certainly not um, anything I can take credit for, but it's something that our three founders were so um, committed to. And I think yeah, it's, it's, like, it's yeah. extraordinary. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's no. like T.S. Eliot has said, you know, you arrive at the same place, um, but you're different. Yes, and it's, and it's true. It really is true. Um, to speak to the, the audience and, and who's coming, because I think, you know, one of the things that we try to avoid at DIA is to talk about numbers. Now, of course, we care that people come, but what we really care about is who's coming and how can we expand that audience and, and how, who are we speaking to and, and how can we make sure that this is not um, a completely limited group of people. Um, and we have a long way to go in that respect, I have to say. It's something that we are, are very focused on. But um, one of the things that, that was such a great surprise to me when I started at DIA, um, you know, I'd obviously been a visitor myself for many years, but uh, DIA Beacon especially, which is where the majority of our collection is based. You know, we have mm -hmm. 11, 11 sites and, and one of them is Beacon. Um, mm -hmm. I always assumed and never, you know, you, you look at things so differently, of course, once you're working within a place as opposed to being a visitor. But I had always assumed that probably the audience would be, you know, people who are not so far off the generation of the artists that we show, which is, you know, work predominantly from the 60s and 70s, not exclusively, but predominantly. Mm -hmm. um, and I was totally wrong. The people who come to Dear Beacon, in fact, to, to most of our sites are in their 20s and early 30s. I mean, that's, you know, almost 80% of our, our visitors. So I had to, you know, completely rethink, and it also, you know, it shows how often institutions make presumptions about what will or won't be popular slash um, relevant or, you know, um, speak to, to different audiences, um, when quite often we haven't, we, we don't know what we're talking about at all. You know, I mean, here's, here's a very um, sort of experiential site with natural light, very open spaces, um, work that, yes, um, in, in the vast majority emerged from the kind of experiments of the 60s and 70s, but I'm almost 100% sure that the audience that we have, this young audience, doesn't come up looking for a, a kind of trip down memory lane into some history that they weren't, um, you know, there for, but they mm -hmm. come because it feels incredibly present. Um, it, feels, it feels of the moment, not of the past. So that was a, a, a huge turning point, I think, for all of us at the institution to really reflect on this and think about um, what that means in terms of what we do, you know? Yeah, and I mean, to think of, I guess it's not open yet, but thinking about the Earth Room and how relevant it is at the moment to see that in Manhattan should be, I mean, even if you've seen it more than a couple of times, it will be contemplative at Absolutely. this moment in time. Yes, yeah, I mean, we opened, the Broken Kilometer just a couple of weeks ago, and hopefully the Earth Room's opening in a couple of weeks, in fact. But um, it's interesting you say that because the the um, people who've been the long-term caretakers of those sites, um, Bill and Patty Dilworth, always say that after a moment of upheaval, whether it was the last election or 
9-11, um, these spaces have provided an incredible um, place of solace and contemplation um, and that they've seen sort of huge upticks in the numbers of people coming after moments of, of uh, discord and, and strife and, and um, sort of upset within within our context here. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's. I think with what is so interesting about Dia and and also your presence at Dia is that you know this this idea of a, taking a journey and it's not a simple visit or it's not about consuming or um, going to an exhibition. It's about the authentic connections that you can have with artists, whether they are you know that they've been built in the '60s or '70s or um, they have been commissioned recently. It's it invites the viewers to contemplate and to meditate maybe or um and i mean i i wish this can be a um reference point for other institutions i mean there's certainly if there's going to be a shift of mindset it should be at this moment right yes i mean i i don't know i'm, I'm always um in favor of of uh you know the the multitude. We should all we should all be true to ourselves, whatever that might be. I mean, understanding what your mission is and your ethos and um, what you are, what you should be, what you could be, um, but not replicating another institution because, of course, that would just be boring, right? <laughs> we, don't want, we don't want to go and see the same thing everywhere, and we want to go to places that that have that kind of unique quality. I mean, I think we're very fortunate in really knowing who we are as an institution. Um, and I guess you know something that I that seemed very striking to me when I started was uh, that you know I I think I've said this a few times but if we'd had a collection of abstract expressionism I think I would have been the first one to say enough irrelevant at this point sorry we're moving on you know <laughs> um, but the but the work that we have is about space and light and looking perception and perception is many things it's about you know the way, if you look carefully then you are a, a critical reader of the world you know. And I think, you know, much of the work that we show is about that kind of critical lens, even if it is not, um, you know, stated, of course, in, in, in um, you know, any kind of didactic manner. I think most of the artists that we work with are, are passionate about process, about ecology, about landscape, about our place in the world. Um, and those are still questions and parameters that are, that are as relevant now as they were um, in 1968, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, this, I, I guess, I mean, at the moment, this moving away from this fatigue, like an, like an art fair, I mean, you've often said, talked about um, locality and small spaces and to have a distinctive um, premise with institutions and to have a clear vision, which um, Dia has been able to maintain. And um, you have been able to um, create you know, working with new artists with the same kind of, the same level of authentic um, connections. And I think at this moment, locality is, um, locality would be more and more important. And um, this distinctive premise of what you are doing and to understand, um, understand your premise would be more important in the yes. future. Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely right. I, you know, I think one of the really exciting things to witness have been some of the commissions um, that we've undertaken in the last few years. And most of which, in fact, all of which I would say have come out of many years of um, dialogue, also spending time allowing the artists to visit the different sites, whether it's um, Spiral Jetty and Sun Tunnels, or the Lightning Field, or visiting, of course, the spaces here in New York City. 
Um, and back to this notion of the journey, I think you know all of them have come to really understand the necessity of that that um, sort of process of uh, arriving at a at a place, you know, and and that what that journey entails, and that the journey is as much part of the work as the work itself. Um, I mean, a great example of that is the project we did with Jennifer Alora and Guillermo mm -hmm. in Puerto Rico. Um, that was in a, a sort of amazing landscape in Puerto Rico, uh, run by the land trust there. But to arrive at, at the site of the work, so to speak, which was a, a hundred foot high cave, um, sort of quite off the beaten track. And you were taken through a landscape that was arid and then lush, um, a pathway that took you past all kinds of other land formations that are very typical of that particular area in Puerto Rico before arriving at this kind of spectacular kind of nave-like um, uh, cave, um, at the back of which was this work by Dan Flavin titled Puerto Rican mm -hmm. Light, which was itself um, run on a battery that was um, powered through sunlight. So this kind mm -hmm. of of Puerto Rican Light feeding the work called Puerto Rican Light. But uh, you know, it was a piece that I think um, completely was in tune with with the history of works that we've done. We're, we're still sort of hoping that we might be able to, that, that a terrible hurricane that hit Puerto Rico um, brought that project to an early earlier end than it should have had. It was up for two years, um, but we're still very hopeful that we'll be able to replace that. But it, you know, I think that that process that we've gone through with so many artists right now, we have this really extraordinary installation by Carl Craig, um, the Detroit-based DJ and mm -hmm. musician. And Carl also was, you know, he was coming and going to the different sites at DIA for close to five years and particularly drawn to Beacon because of the industrial architecture, which he um, was so familiar with from um, from Detroit and from Detroit, yeah. yeah, the projects he'd undertaken there. But of course, had all kinds of acoustic challenges. But but I think it was through the time that we spent with him and, and his thinking around duration, and you know, creating a, a sound environment that wasn't limited to the, you know, the, the kind of club experience of whatever it might be, you know, five hours, six hours at night, and then the the point of end. But really thinking about something that could continue um, during the, you know, for for an entire um, for an entire day, and and then of course for for the weeks and months of this installation, it was amazing to see him kind of think through that that difference, I suppose, of of approach and producing something that was a durational sound piece. Um, it's you know it's a it's a real um, how can I put it I mean it's kind of a honor and a pleasure for us to be able to work on projects like that and, and give them the space and time and then be able to have them up for such an extended period of time as well. I mean it, it requires a um, a sense of dedication not only from the artist and the institution but also from the viewer I guess because you know it is a it is a hassle to um, to arrive at these places, and you need to book tickets. And um, I mean, it's not easy. And also, you're cut off from communication, right? I mean, if you're cut off from, um, it's true. From, yeah. I mean, which is which is what yeah. we've experienced with the lockdown, uh, which I think is very interesting. Um, that you, Although you know, it, yeah. Well, I was going to say as you as you were pointing to the, the sort of significance of of the local. Merv. I mean, we saw a, a huge uptick in the number of people coming from Utah to visit Spiral Jetty and Sun Tunnels, um, particularly during the lockdown. It, you know, obviously these are these are sites that are open and accessible. They're land art, 
Um, mm -hmm. There's no, you know, there's no barrier, there's no ticketing, there's no, <laughs> um, um, and it was great to see, to understand that so many people were, were heading there at that time. Um, it, you know, also comes with its own challenges because part of our remit, of course, is to preserve and maintain those sites as well. Um, but yes, you're right. I mean, it, it is, it's a, it requires a certain dedication and um, intentionality, I suppose. And maybe that's something that's important about most of our spaces, even if it's visiting the Earth Room in New York City, which, you know, all of our sites in New York are free, so anybody could come, mm -hmm. they're open. But, um, you know, usually people are running around and they're not thinking about taking that moment out and, you know, ringing the bell at 141 Worcester Street and, you know, going upstairs and spending some time with this incredible work. Um, but, and so it requires a, a certain mindset. It's not, it's not something, I don't think you visit in the same way that you visit other places, let's say. Um, um, certainly, and I think at this moment, it's even more relevant. One thing is, I mean, I've been considering what Jerry Salsa says from what you've been talking about, like in an article that he wrote in April, and he said, art isn't about professionalism, efficiency, insurance, and safety. It's about eccentricity, risk, and resistance, and adaptation, which I feel like you've been dedicated to for, I don't know, years. Well, I think, you know, I, I think it's, it's not, um, it's not interesting anyway, personally and professionally, <laughs> to, to, to follow, you know, what's already been done. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, just selfishly speaking about my own experience, uh, I've been incredibly lucky in that I have been able to expand my knowledge and experience and understanding of the, you know, multiple um, sites and places of, of, of art making in a way that, you know, I don't think I ever could have expected to be able to. I mean, particularly at Tate, spending so much time in in the Middle East and in South Asia was extraordinary. I mean, it, it sort of changed my view of, of so many um, aspects of art making and practice and whether from the, the sort of concept to the execution, um, but also the, the kind of locale and the, the socioeconomic impacts on, on all of these artists' work. Um, but I think, you know, similarly at, at DIA, we, you know, and this is very much the, the curatorial team, I think, you know, we felt very strongly that our role is to try and work with artists who wouldn't otherwise be having this experience, whether it's about time and space and, and a kind of commitment in terms of seeing through a project um, and that there are, you know, many great artists who we just wouldn't work with simply because they're already realizing projects or receiving support that um, there's nothing else for us to add, really, you know? So I think it's been very important to us that we have thought about either, you know, working on a project like with Jennifer and Guillermo, which is, you know, not something that probably any other um, right-minded person would undertake, um, or, or really thinking about people like Carl, who are kind of in a tradition that is very deeply rooted at, at Deer of um, industrial music, of, um, of uh, durational sound, but opening a door, I suppose, for a completely other way of thinking about contemporary music and, and its place within the institution. Or working, you know, I can think of people like Joelle Terlings that we worked mm -hmm. on a project that was a, a sort of week-long performance at Deer Beacon. I mean, again, it was sort of four years in the making. Um, and these projects, I mean, Lucy Raven, who's a, who will um, open our space in, in Chelsea again with a sort of meditation on 
in some shape or form what what sort of what is the significance of land art and and the American West at this time a very kind of critical view of that as well as um, uh, a, you know one one formed out of affection but also a, a real understanding of what that landscape um, hides at the moment as well so I mean these projects are, are ones that I think um, we're uniquely set to undertake. And it, and a lot of that is to do with the time that we're able to put into them and also the flexibility. I mean, we, we never have a kind of um, rotation of exhibitions in the way that most institutions do with sort of seasons and set openings. It's, it's kind of a, when you're ready, we'll do it. Um, and that for me also personally was, was a kind of liberation, I have to say, from getting off the treadmill of September show opens, you know, <laughs> January show opens, May show opens, they have to have a catalogue, it has to be created in some particular way. I mean, that I think is the problem. You know, we, we set up these kind of false um, uh, structures and every, you know, we, we've all been conforming to them instead of doing what we should do, which is questioning them and, and you know, rethinking, continuously rethinking ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess it's the clarity of Tia and the, I mean, the values that I believe are in place like in-depth thinking, commitments and long-term relationships. And I think, I mean, just uh, following um, you in your career, uh, going back to the Tate, for example, I mean, in my humble opinion, uh, which I've been able to, I think, observe is like there are two important marks that you have left is one is the inclusion of women artists in the collection, many of whom were excised from, the, from artistry. And I mean, of course, together with, um, I mean, the, the team of curators. And secondly, working with art, artists that are outside of the Western context. I mean, this may, I mean, both of them may not be solely your vision, but surely it included many other driving forces. But with, you know, I have been able to observe how you work and engage in relationships with artists, I mean, especially in Turkey. And I thought that it was exceptional and the genuine interest in trying to understand the context of the work that they do in Turkey was inspirational. And I know that you maintain many of these relationships and this long-term thinking and deeper connections with artists is, um, I mean, I understand that it's also, a, it is a mission of Dia, but I think it has also been a part of your work. You've added um, works of Ali Kazma and Füsun Onur to the collection of Tate amongst others. And um, you've contributed so much to the presence of contemporary art from Turkey. Um, to the Tate and also to the international art world, I think. And my question is, I mean, this genuine interest and the dedication that you have, uh, I mean, how can institutions, how can there be a shift in institutions where the metrics may be different or feedback systems or rewarding systems? Um, I mean, how can we make a change in that where people have more genuine interest like you um, which is what well, I've observed. <laughs> Thank you for saying that, Marvin. And I have to say, I think you you were you were very important in allowing me to to be able to spend time there, as was Saha. I mean, that these were really incredibly important um, axes for time to be able to spend um, in Turkey, especially. It was it was such a privilege. Um, I you know I think I think it's also about. Um, new generations of curators. Uh, I hope, and I certainly feel that about, you know, the, the people that I work with here at DIA, um, there's a real understanding that you cannot accept a given history, you know? Whatever what you're going to find 
in the library that whatever you research at the first layer of the internet, whatever you, um, what, what are those first conversations you have with, with galleries or with other institutions, will tell you the same thing that's been told year after year after year. Um, and it's not enough, you know, I mean, we, we all have uh, a real responsibility to, to dig deeper. And more than that, it, that's, of course, what's so pleasurable is to uncover, you know, histories that, um, you know, that are, were there, that are, that are not impossible to uncover, but that it requires a peeling back of the layers, you know, I mean, you, you, you can't visit somewhere once and think that you have any insight whatsoever into um, a, a cultural context and you need to speak to mm -hmm. some people and you need to spend so much time and that's where the genuine um, the genuine change can take place I think um, and it's it's about these kind of it, precisely as you say long-term relationships and and really building on um, a process of understanding and creating um, you know real collaborative uh, contexts and um, dialogue you know it's it's um it's not a one-way process i think that that's the other very important part of this of course is you know what what are you how are you contributing back which i must say you know i think it's one of the most complicated um parts of this sort of building of a collection particularly some of like tate i think um you know what what is the consequence of this um long term um wonderful to bring these works into the collection but what is you know what's that responsibility um mm -hmm. how can it be not representational but just you know yes to, to be in, in more in depth exactly yeah it's a, it's very complicated but you know i think it, it was an unbelievably fascinating time for me to work at tate and and indeed as you say i had the most incredible colleagues i mean who i'm still really close to elvira diangani Ose and catherine wood and stuart comer and um so many others i mean they're just an amazing group of people um and you know many of them still there doing great work and many others now um sort of really even more forcefully beginning to to change the collection um and i think you know i think the the commitment to that has been incredible and and as francis says i mean back to this idea of, of working from the collection um mm -hmm. that's the incredible opportunity there and and to be honest sort of i suppose once again to, to reflect on our audiences our, our communities they, you know, I, I truly believe that there isn't um, a, a demand to see these expensive um, exhibitions with works brought together from all over the world. That there is really, you know, what what they people are hungry for is to, is to see innovation, as we've seen over and over again. You know, um, mm -hmm. you know, when when we showed Salou Rao de Shukar, it was an incredibly popular exhibition. Nobody had ever heard of her. You know. Um, similarly, similarly, I have to say, which is hard to imagine now, but when the Kusama exhibition, which Francis Morris curated, um, was at Tate, there was a very low expectation of, of how interested people would be. This is before the kind of Kusama explosion, let's say. But the exhibition was, was very much part of changing that uh, perception. Um, so, we, you know, there's this incredible opportunity to, to tell a different story that people will be hungry for, because quite honestly, there's no reason why people should know all these. I suppose it's another thing coming back to Dia. I mean, with the changes that we've undertaken with the collection, the real ambition there was precisely to show a different 60s and 70s history. You know, it's like this, what we were mm -hmm. showing was not, that was not a true reflection of what had happened and what was taking place and what was most interesting, you know, and, and it was our 
um, it's our duty, I feel, to to expand that. And and you know, we'll never be able to tell the whole story because there's no such thing. But what we can do at least is complicate what we had been presenting up until now. And and that's our, you know, that's it's so important to do that. Um, so it's a little bit rambling, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. But it also reflects upon, I think it's not only, I mean, for younger audiences, I guess it's also explains that it's not only, not only an art that, you know, there are these other histories that happen, but, you know, once you see that, you understand that in all the different contexts, it's the same. Yes. Uh, and exactly. what has been, you know, every inclusion is an exclusion in itself. So, um Exactly. So, yes. You know, it makes you think about what has been excluded, excluded not only in the art world but in in many different social and historical contexts. Yes. Um, and I mean, another a, a personal question comes uh, to my mind is that you know you curated the Guangzhou Biennale when you were um, at Tate, and I mean, do you still you obviously you try travel less before COVID even with the Dia position. I mean, do you consider and are you interested in doing projects? Um, you know, I think it, I'd say through through the lens of Deer, especially, um, you know, one of the artists we've been in conversation with for a long time now is Sheila Gowda, um, who's based in Bangalore in India. And, um, you know, conversations with Sheila have often returned to what, what might we do in India. Um, and that mm -hmm. would be so fascinating to me. I spent so much time there over the years, but to... Envision a project there would just be incredible. Um, yes and no. I think these big, you know, the Guangzhou Biennale was such an incredible opportunity. I was, it was the first time I, I had accepted to do something like that precisely because it was Guangzhou. Um, I was so fascinated by the history of Korea and, and the opportunity to really have some time to spend there. You know, it's so much time. They're so generous with the amount of time that you mm -hmm. can spend in Korea with allowing the research to happen with connecting you with people and artists and academics it was extraordinary i mean it, it, incredible um, but i think you were you were uh, i remember they were telling us that you know you spent the most time and you went everywhere i it, remember it was, counting all the places that you've been to and <laughs> it was incredible it, it was an amazing opportunity and, and to you know I had an incredible team um Batosh, as you mentioned uh, who's now running the liverpool biennial i mean mm -hmm. emiliano who's uh from guatemala who's who's been in at mam now in colombia for many years i mean it, it was just an amazing chance to work with great people as well we we you know i look back on it as a very very special opportunity but i can't you know I, it's not so interesting to me anyway to think about a lot of these projects because they're just big exhibitions that happen to be somewhere. This, you know, the Guangzhou Biennale is so much rooted in the history of that place, um, which is, you know, so poignant um, that it makes it very exceptional, you know? And I think what was, you know, what you, what came out was truly exceptional. I mean, in my opinion, but um, anyway, I mean, I, I think I can ask you questions for hours, but um, I'm running out of time. Maybe I will call you another time to have a longer conversation even. But um, one, one last question. I mean, what, what are you inspired from at the moment? I mean, these days or who inspires you? Um, you know, like everyone, I've been spending so much more time online um, and sort of going down rabbit holes that have, you know, I never, I'm sort of both 
I probably shouldn't even admit this. I, I still don't really engage very much with social media, but um, it's been kind of fascinating to, to follow pathways provided by colleagues and other institutions, Portland, PICA, um, the Studio Museum here, ICA London. They've all been doing such incredible work um, and presenting amazing material online that have led me to other artists and other practices. And, and that's been kind of amazing, I have to say. Um, I never thought I would say that, but uh, there's, there's just a, an incredible world out there, which, which you know, of course, is much more democratic in, in many ways, you know? Um, so that's been interesting and, and overwhelming as well, I have to say. I think, you know, trying to find a pathway that's of interest without getting completely distracted by everything. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's closer to the attention economy, I guess. I mean, it's like who, who gets your attention first? Yeah, yeah. But if you if you stick with it and, you know, there are, you know, incredibly substantial contributions online. Um, mm -hmm. So that that has been interesting to me and I'd say I'm still a kind of novice in a way <laughs> I think I'm still, I'm still figuring out where I want to go um, but uh, other than that of course just seeing this kind of tentative reopening um, it's wonderful to see some of the, the galleries here that I love like Essex Street and Bridget Donahue and like these spaces reopening and, and feeling um, you know that the, they are surviving I hope you know um, and the vitality. Yes, yeah. Um, and, you know, having a sense that, that uh, they believe so sincerely in what they're doing and, and that um, these different realms within, you know, what is my orbit now in New York City are, are sustaining each other, you know. Um, I think the, the potential for collaboration perhaps right now is, is really incredibly um, vital and, 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 I, and I hope, you know, something that we will all realize. We've been trying more and more at DIA almost with every project that we do to see if there's a partnership, if there's um, a way to work with someone. We have this major project with Azal Abbas and Ruana Burami. We've been working with them for years on. Again, it's sort of extraordinary online archive of, of songs, protest songs, love songs, celebrations um, created throughout the Middle East um, from the Arab Spring onwards that they've been archiving online and working with us to create this kind of extraordinary online project. And now MoMA's partnering with us to, to show a sort of um, uh, installation version of this project. But, I, you know, I, I'm fully aware that doing a project with DIA online is going to reach a certain number of people and, and the fact that MoMA is now engaged too will, will bring it completely different attention, which is amazing. You know, they're, they're great yeah, artists. Incredible. Um, so thinking about ways in which we can we can help the artists we're working with, you know, um, mm -hmm. and I mean, that's, that's through this, working with other people, you know? Yeah, I mean, I heard that, um, like, I think ISCP and other residency programs are fundraising together, which is incredible because you amazing. Know, there's, there's so much, I mean, there's a of course, there's a lot of competition with funding. And I mean, I know since you've been to, with the, uh, you've worked with Whitney closely in yes. various yeah. different projects. But yeah. I mean, I guess before, in your previous career in the US, it was less of a collaboration uh, environment. Yeah, I mean, I was here from, what was it, sort of 92 to 2002 and um, working at the MCA Chicago and ICA Boston and um, at the ICA, it, it, it was a different environment, I have to say. I mean, that there were 
um, there were fewer fewer institutions looking with a, a really kind of um, globally expansive inter international view. And I think that has always been my interest. Um, and it did feel like a slightly different time then, it's true. Um, maybe it's also a kind of achievement of technology and of course the dramatic uptick in, in travel that, that we also are more connected with each other. But in a funny reversal of that, I think this, this kind of being more local will hopefully result in greater um, collaboration locally. You know, I mean, that I, mm -hmm. I still think, you know, it's every project we do, if somebody else is doing it nearby as well in some different shape or form, you know, if we show Dorothy a rock burn and, and I don't know, um, I can't think of a good example, but, you know, again, MoMA or, or the Whitney showing Dorothy a rock burn, I mean, that's fantastic. It means that people will pay more attention and have a chance to see more work and dig deeper. Mm -hmm. um, you know, similarly, if we're working with Carl and there's another institution that it's exploring techno in another form, um, then great. You know, I mean, that that means that people will begin to understand what a you know radically important movement this was, and not only in Detroit, but around the world, um, addressing, you know, social issues in a, in a sort of incredibly dynamic way, you know. Um, so I, th I think hopefully that will be something that we can all continue to, to build on um how we can yes. work together the, how we can work together and the deeper connections and more i guess more authentic connections and commitment um uh, and looking at uncharted territories i mean this this i just feel like this has been uh, throughout your career what you have been looking into anyway which is great i mean hopefully That's... there will be more of a shift <laughs> i i don't think i've ever um curated an exhibition on my own um, <laughs> I've always co-curated and and I think um, it, for the simple reason that you learn so much more of course it's like what what I know is only going to be so much and if you are working with one or two or, or more other people it's going to be so much better <laughs> I mean it's just it is um, so why why would you want to do things on your own it's always to the benefit of the project the artist the institution yourself you know um, so, I, yeah, I hope there'll be more of that. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for, for joining me for this podcast. It's always inspirational to talk to you. A pleasure, Merv. It's great to hear your voice. And I, yeah, I hope you continue. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.